I was lucky enough to be featured on a number of podcasts as a guest last year. However, on today's episode, I want to share a special interview that I think listeners of Brains Bite Back will really enjoy. I was invited on the podcast, Don't Worry, We'll Talk It Out, hosted by Randon Heim. And if you're a long-time listener of Brains Bite Back, you might remember Randon as he was a guest on the episode Cancel Culture, A Digital Witch Hunt. In this episode, titled Social Media and Our Psychology, we discuss the effects of social media, political polarization, conspiracy theories, information overload, and ways to form a healthier relationship with technology and social media. And if you like this interview, you can find the original episode of this podcast on the channel of Don't Worry, We'll Talk It Out, which can be found on all major podcasting platforms. Anyway, here is the interview. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Don't Worry, We'll Talk It Out. Of course, I'm your host, Randon. And for this episode, I'm going to be focusing on social media and how it's currently affecting our psychology. I'll be joined this episode with Sam Brakegia. Sam is the host of the podcast Brains Bite Back, and that takes a look at how our brains, psychology, and society is currently being impacted by the ever-evolving technology that surrounds us. I really enjoyed my conversation with Sam on this podcast. I feel we touched on a number of important aspects of social media, including misinformation, tribalism, information overload, depression, anxiety, narcissism, distractions. But we also touch on how to actually have a healthy relationship with this new overload of technology. Um, I think all of this was really great. I want to thank Sam again for coming onto this podcast. And without wasting any more time, guys, let's get right into it. Um, this is my conversation with Sam Breguia with social media and how it's affecting our psychology. You're listening to Don't Worry, We'll Talk It Out. Sam, great to see you again, my man. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. The pleasure's are mine. Absolutely. Um, you know, I wanted to bring you on the show, man, because, well, of course, your entire podcast, Brains Bite Back, is focused on how brains, our brains are being rapidly changed by technology. And I think you and I can really synthesize the problem here and even kind of give our thoughts about how to maybe even have a healthy relationship with technology as well. Um, but Sam, if you don't mind, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So my name is Sam Breakgear. I am the host of two podcasts, uh, Brains Bite Back, which is going to be the main podcast that we'll talk about today, where we look at how our brains are impacted by the ever-evolving technology that surrounds us and that we live with. And then I also host The Loudspeaker, which is a PR marketing podcast on behalf of um, the company that I work for, Publicize. And um, I'm really passionate about these two topics, but specifically Brains Bite Back, because I was a psychology student. I graduated in 2014. And then shortly after that, I started my career in technology. I was a technology salesman. And then afterwards, after moving to Medellin, I left the UK in 2016. I pretty much gave away all my possessions. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to find somewhere in the world to live, somewhere cool, like where there's the sun rather than this gray, rainy mm -hmm. island. And I just went to the US and I spent eight months traveling. I traveled from Mexico down to Colombia by bus and by boat. When I got to Medellin, I, um, I loved it here and I decided to stay here. Fortunately, I managed to find a job working as a writer for a small startup. 
And um, I was a tech writer focusing on uh, the tech publication, The Sociable, where the brain's bite backs it. And I fell in love with podcasting and I couldn't find any podcast relating to psychology and technology because that's what I loved writing about with my psychology background and my career in technology. I couldn't find anything. So I decided to put an idea forward within my company to start a podcast, Brains Bite Back. And that's how it was born. So it really is a passion project that's evolved into a full-time job really for me. And I'm very fortunate to have that. And I'm happy to join you today to discuss all things related to psychology and technology. Absolutely. Um, that That's amazing. No, yeah, of course, your credentials uh, fit the scene very well. Um, and Sam, you know, to begin, I think um, I think this first topic will be very pertinent to what has transpired, which, of course, in America was the election of the next president of the United States. And I think the topic of misinformation, a.k.a. fake news, um, is incredibly relevant. And I think that one of the main reasons a lot of polarization and even confusion um, is seen all over the Internet and just how people actively interpret reality now is vastly Mm -hmm. different. Um, and it's rapidly changing, especially over the last just the last decade. So uh, and, and Sam, I would love to pass it off to you, because I think real quick, I would love to hear your thoughts on this and how we can kind of start a dialogue um, and then about acts of misinformation, disinformation and even tribalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got to say, it seems that almost we have like this predisposition to just run away with information that could be false or fake as long as it fits in with what we are looking for and i think that's probably one of the biggest issues that we face and one of the topics that comes up a lot on the show is biases and the main one that comes up again and again and i think that that is like fake news is best friend in the sense that we really do seek to affirm what we know Mm. and kind of ignore what doesn't uh fit with what we believe and that's something that's come up a lot like one of our previous episodes we talked about conspiracy theories and that was a major issue with uh confirmation bias that that was huge that's uh, one of the main contributors for for belief in conspiracy theories it seems and in addition to that i recently had on um a critical thinking expert and they spoke about many different biases but it seems like confirmation bias really is the biggest issue here and as well i was checking out the information that you you sent over you sent over the the link obviously the ledger of harms which is um mm-hmm. you mentioned is a was it the humane society for technology i can't remember the name yeah yeah the center for humane technology that is That's created it. by uh tristan harris who is mm. if anyone is familiar with the social dilemma on netflix right now that's one of the main producers yeah yeah it's interesting because that has come up in multiple episodes like within the past like three episodes it's come up twice separately Mm. from guests Mm. so i had one guest on and maybe we'll talk about this later but she was um uh, a doctor and a sex therapist and she was talking about how younger generations are experiencing a a sexual recession Mm. and there's multiple reasons for this and technology plays a role in certain parts they mentioned um i know some sources were mentioned like dating apps and pornography but her main uh point was that we're so divided with our attention from our like phones that it creates such anxiety and depression that we don't have the same energy or it affects like um our energy in that sense and just our attention 
so that it's causing a real issue within libido and young people. Mm. And she mentioned, like she kept mentioning the social dilemma and the, and also who else was it? Um, Yeah. Critical thinking as well. That, that was a major, that was a major point as well. So it definitely seems like it's in the past few weeks anyway, I've just heard this pop up. I need to check out the documentary. I still haven't. So shame on me for that. But at the same time, I was looking at the information you sent over, which is from them. And it seems that fake news, I think it was said it spreads like four times faster. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was six it ended faster. <laughs> six times faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it seems that like, it's almost like we're predispositioned to be so susceptible to believing this. Right. And it, it just seems that we're experiencing like a virus in one sense, mm. uh, that COVID. But at the same time, we have this kind of intellectual virus almost that spreads throughout our social social networks and it's interesting because a lot the thing is there's a lot of overlap as well between like covid and fake news like i I saw on the page it says 45 percent of tweets about coronavirus are from from bots spreading fake information wow so it seems like in one sense in one sense we're facing a literal kind of virus physically and in the other sense we're also facing a a virus which spreads so rapidly within our, our social networks Absolutely. I'm, I'm really happy that you brought that up because I, I have in my notes right here, plague of over-information. And I kept going, is it right to use that word? But it is. I think it's very pertinent because, I mean, you brought up so much good, good things right there. Fake news spreading faster than real news. I have one little uh, tidbit of information here. In 2016, which is really when we started to see a really larger influx of absolutely confabulated uh, news articles that claim to be real. Um, In 2016, the top 20 fake news Facebook articles spread more to to more people, to more millions of people than the top 20 true stories from The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal and The New York Post combined. Right. Mm. So and, and some of these were. I mean, absolute confabulations. Like one was in twenty uh, early twenty fifteen when Obama was still in the uh, in the presidency. One claimed that he wanted to uh, th- that he had signed a law banning the the Pledge of Allegiance, right? And <laughs> I mean, and this was shared I think twenty five million times. Mm. I mean, and, and now who knows? Like you mentioned, bots. Who knows how many of the, uh, those shares were actually real people? Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless of that. The number of times you witness or you see a fake news story, the more exposure you have to it once, twice, three times, you're more susceptible to using that confirmation bias, like you mentioned. If you see it enough times, odds are you might go, hmm, I keep seeing this. It might be a little bit of, it might be just an edge of truth to that. And I I think all of that is really driving uh, this plague of over-information, especially to a number of kids, um, especially to our younger generation, who I think it's quite difficult. Um, and especially from, I, I hear this from my parents a lot, you know, that they, they say, you guys have the world at your fingertips, right? And we, we can discover anything that we ever wanted to really quickly. But it's really not that simple. Um, it's it's kind of getting quite more difficult uh, to find the objective truth now because everyone lives in their own ecosystem of the internet. And I I think I really wanted to 
I keep mentioning the social dilemma because it's brought up, and I think a lot of people are mentioning it more because it, they, they constantly bring up a thing that you brought up, which is the attention economy. Um, our attention now, I think the average for a person is 40 seconds. That's how long our attention span has decreased. It used to be, I think, two or three minutes. Now it's it's at about 40 seconds. It might even be less before we pick up our cell phones and just just open it. You know, just kind of mm-hmm. turn it on and turn it off and then get back to doing some work. I think all of this is really circumventing a number of our focus and how we can, dive, you know, put a lot of effort into finding a lot of objective truths that we might know uh, or should think is is somewhat true. Right. Um, maybe it's vaccines. Maybe it's uh, information just in general about the coronavirus and what it has done to us. Um, but what, in terms of conspiracy theories, what have uh, you heard about that, especially from your guests, about how um, how susceptible we are to a lot of these conspiracy theories? Yeah, so I was quite interested by this because I came onto the show with a preconception. I listened to their episode. So um, it's a Psychology After Dark. It's a podcast um, hosted by these two doctors in psychology. And they're, they're, they were great guests. They were really wonderful people. And I'd highly recommend anyone check out their show. And they had an episode on conspiracy theories. And I loved it. I was like really fascinated by it. And I wanted to invite them on the show to kind of dissect what they discussed. And one of the things that they mentioned on the show was an article. And the article analyzes some of the psychological components of why people believe um, conspiracy theories. And it seemed that people who have less analytical abilities or not less analytical abilities, but aren't as well trained in analyzing data and information, hmm. um, perhaps from um, like a, an academic sense, they uh, they did say in the article that the there's a, I believe a correlation between like the amount of formal education one has versus how likely they are to believe in a conspiracy theory. So hmm. I was very much of the opinion of, Okay, so if we were to train everyone to be more critical and more analytical with the information they receive, would that be a remedy to this? And they actually said the data or research suggests that it's not necessarily um, our ability to analyze, but it's our locus of control, our sense of control. They actually produced many studies on the show. Well, not produced, but they presented and shared many studies on my episode where it showed that if you have a higher sense of control, you're less likely to believe in conspiracy theories. Hmm. And it's kind of like true because they said that conspiracy theories or people that believe in them anyway are less likely to vote. So obviously they have a sense of, oh, there's this is futility. Like I can't control this. I can't change this. And I even mentioned I have members of my family that are strong believers of conspiracy theories, one in particular, and he doesn't vote for that exact reason. He (laughs) thinks it's futile. Mm -hmm. And I'm just... I'm just, yeah, like, so uh, it's it's so surprising to hear that. I would have thought that they, I don't know, they would have wanted to change something. But it, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I it, it came as a surprise to me, but it's good to know that, like, almost you have the power to change your perspectives once you believe that you can make a change yourself. There's a sense of, um, it's just a real disruption, of mm. who you are, right? And, and but I I see this a lot. If if for instance, say right now, um, if if well, actually, let's go back. Let's go back to the the beginnings of the pandemic around March, right? We're just learning a lot about this virus. Mm. Every time I would read a comment 
or something that was incredibly, literally the, the exact opposite, the 180 of what I believed to be what was transpiring. I mean, you can mm-hmm. feel that anxiety, that, that what is happening, you know, kind of rise up in your, you know, literally physiological manifestations of stress. And mm-hmm. if you put that at the highest, highest level, right, uh, say, for instance, I mean, I, I have a lot of members of my family are, the, are similar in terms of, well, maybe they feel George Soros, the, the Jewish billionaire, is actually the one behind all the Black Lives Matter protests, right? He's actually doing this to sow discord in society. If I, if I give you really good information and evidence that that's not true, Everything you've believed for all those months is, is a lie. I mean, that, that's a lot. It takes a lot for uh, just one individual to go through that. Now, mm. if you encompass 325 million people in the American populace, where a lot of our critical thinking skills, like you're saying, seem to be going down, uh, it's, it's really difficult to control those things. Uh, I want to venture into how it's affecting our psychology, because this is what we're getting at here. What it's doing to us at an individual level is producing immense amounts of stress and anxiety um, because of these confirmation biases. And if we learn that a lot of these biases are untrue, I think it produces so much distress on the individual that most people don't know what to do. So they go, mm. well, I'll just, I'll just keep believing this because it, it's nice. It feels good. At least, mm. I, at least I have a subjective truth um, to, to go with. How, how do you feel about how it's affecting our psychology, especially from an anxiety and depression standpoint? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it is definitely going to have a strong impact in those senses. But I also think that you mentioned a really good point earlier, like tribalism. I think that we're innately hardwired to be like us versus them in the saddest way possible. But I don't always think that that's necessarily a bad thing in the sense of like, if you look at sports and the World Cup's on, and then it's like you're, or, or I don't know what you Americans su- support. <laughs> Obviously, when it comes to like football or soccer World Cup, maybe you're not too passionate. Well, for the women's anyway, you're number one. So right. <laughs> maybe you're getting on that. But um, when it comes to like world sports and your country's competing against another country, then it's it's nice to have that passion or whatever. Or maybe you've got like a, a UFC fighter you back from your neck of the woods or something something like that i don't know yeah whatever sport you're into but at the same time i one thing that i definitely see in the u.s which i mean it may be it's applicable in the uk i haven't lived in the uk for like four years and i I definitely think it's applicable elsewhere but definitely in the u.s is it's this almost like politics is a sports thing it's like reds versus blue your team versus my team and it's almost like whatever they need to do to get their their point across like to score that goal like they go for it. So it's almost like, no, they're doing this. And it's, like, it's just bickering. And it seems, I think, especially in the US, because many other countries have like a diverse selection of political parties you can choose from. Like we have that in the UK and like here in Colombia, but in the US, because it primarily is just two parties, it it fosters this sense of like us versus them. And I think definitely that that's made it very easy for like fake news to kind of foster this um, us versus them mentality. Mm-hmm. And I remember, actually, I think at the start of 2016, or when the misinformation campaigns happened, and Russia was having all these keyboard armies, like spreading misinformation, I think that they did actually run tests um, to see who bit the hardest or who, um, uh, I suppose, gobbled up fake news more, the like Democrat supporters or Republican supporters. And they found that 
those who are more right-wing were more likely to uh, consume fake news. So therefore, they just went entirely down that route of like trying to, um, I suppose, instigate that side. And I think it was Jordan Peterson that said, hmm. the thing that happens with politics is when one political party goes really far to their side, like say far to the right, then the other side will try and compensate or try and overcompensate. So eventually they just go further and further and further apart because they're trying to compete and trying to contend one another. Mm. And I think that that's been the, the catalyst here. So I would say when it comes to affecting our psychology, I think the hardest thing is to remember that we're all trying to get to the same point pretty much. We all want a fair, equal, honest society where if you work hard, you're going to be rewarded with low crime and um, a nice lifestyle and essentially that American dream that everyone's going for. But I suppose how we're trying to get there and the fact that we forget that we're all on the same path trying to get to the same place, that's the hardest thing for me. But obviously this is difficult for me to talk about objectively because I'm not American. I haven't lived in the US. Um, I'm based in Colombia and I'm from the UK. So I don't really have a strong sense of knowledge in one particular place to talk about politics in one sense. I, th- mm-hmm. I think we talked about like culture in the past, right. like how it's hard to to pinpoint that because it, it shifts for each country. But this is certainly what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. And this is how I feel like it's affecting us the most, like in this tribalistic sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the tribalism encompasses, I think so much. It, it encompasses a lot of narcissism. Um, and it, it really grows, I think, um, your comparison uh, of others. And if, I mean, if I, if I had to pinpoint one thing that is probably big for me is this social comparison aspect, which mm-hmm. I, I think most of us, um, well, not even most of us, just the deck, just through all the millennia of human civilization, we just didn't know um, the highlights of a person's life 24-7. And the comparison of those highlights to your lowlights, which you're most of the time you're actively in because 95% of most people's days are kind of banal, right? It's, I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm not going to videotape myself walking from my bed to take a shower in the morning, you know, just so here's my feet walking in. I mean, some people do that. And I think that's kind of a good thing to kind of bring the ordinary life into social media and realize Mm. that a lot of the stuff is boring because that really will inhibit a lot of the younger generations and even the older generations going, you know, I didn't do that today or I haven't done enough advocating today and therefore it makes me feel kind of lowly as a person and I I see that a lot Um, but you know there are some good aspects to social media but I definitely think the negatives outweigh the bad of course but Mm. in terms of you know it is of course it's increased because I I think to play devil's advocate some people will go you know we don't have enough data to suggest a lot of these things are actually hindering us from seeing this reality the same way. And they say, well, we have increased connection, right? You know, people can talk to each other as many times as they want to. Uh, maybe some people have said that it actually has increased empathy. I don't know about that. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I can, we can certainly find a lot of things um, bad in the world and we compare it to ourselves and we go, hmm, you know, I, we have to work to change those things, right? For, for people that I a marginalized community or people that I didn't really even know were dealing with the type of things. But in social media gives us a place to look at those things. But at the same time, 
this constant humming of anxiety that is producing, I think, is really unraveling a lot of the social uh, reality that we see because it's just as simple, Sam. You're mentioning that you're on the other side of the world. And from looking out, you know, looking in at us, it seems that if if I'm here and I go talk to my neighbor over there, my neighbor's going to have a very, very, very different ideal of how this presidential election went, right? That mm. it might, and and this is just because of, and I bring it back to this uh, to Tristan Harris and the social dilemma because it's all about the algorithms, and this is where I want to go next. When you and I are on Facebook, Sam. You would if, if we followed the exact same people, we followed 100 people, you would expect most people would think that if you, we both open up our phones and go to Facebook, we might see the same thing. But that's not how it is, actually. What we're learning is it's the exact opposite. Whatever you have clicked on, and I, I think it's an, I, I love to give the analogy of a car crash. So th- this is my analogy. of uh, So picture the highway. The highway is the Internet. And we're all going on the Internet. Sometimes we go off the highway because we, we, you know, we discharge from the Internet for a while. But eventually we come back because we got to go to work. We're on the highway and a car crash happens. What happens is everyone's going to look at the car crash, right? When you go, when you go past it, that's just how it is. I, I wonder if everyone's okay. I wonder what happened. Oh, this is crazy. Uh-huh. The algorithm thinks we want to see more car crashes. <laughs> they go, oh, oh, so that's what you like. You must like this because your attention is certainly to this. So maybe I'll give some more of this, right? Maybe I'll give a Facebook update from the friend that you don't really know as well, Mm. but his politics are the exact opposite of yours. And if I put it on your page, maybe you comment, you know, maybe you Uh dislike it. And I, I think that algorithm is kind of crafted for our personalities. And this is really hindering a number of things. What are your thoughts on um, j- just how, it, what we actually see on a daily basis on social media and how it's actually influencing uh, how we speak to each other? Yeah. Did you come up with that analogy? I like that analogy. Well, Tristan has a similar analogy, but I thought, I thought, well, I, I, he, he has an analogy similar to like, uh, it was something about a helicopter or something, how we always look up. Uh, at the sky, and I was like, I kind of like a car crash better because <laughs> you know it, it makes more sense, it's more relatable. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. we all see car crashes. No, oh, I like that. Um, yeah. So, oh, what was your question again? I was well, so distracted by the the, the, <laughs> the, the car analogy. Crash I like that. I was like, oh, that's a good one. Well, well um, j- just in terms of how it conforms to to every single individual on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, yes. whatever. Yeah. You know, how do you feel that's actually changing uh, how we just speak to each other in real reality? Yeah, so I would say that, I mean, it's easier to see people not as human beings online. And therefore, it's it's almost like you don't see the damage that's caused. It's like you can speak to someone in a certain way and you don't have the same repercussions as if you were to speak to them in person. And I think one of the things that one, you don't have the necessary fear that they're going to punch you if you call them a dick online. <laughs> and also, you don't really see their expressions. Like, if you're horrible to someone in real life, then there's a chance they're going to be upset or offended. And I think that anyone that has, like, a, a human level of empathy or is, is human and just doesn't really enjoy taking satisfaction, I suppose, in really hurting someone, mm. emotionally or physically, especially, like... um 
emotionally in this sense. They're not going to say these things. So I think that the repercussions of acting like this and behaving like this are completely different online than they are in person. And that's something that I think we're still trying to get used to because I don't think that's that's something we've really had to adjust to. I mean, obviously the telephone's been around for a while, but I'm pretty sure if you were to yell at someone on the telephone, you're still going to hear their voice and you're still going to see them as more human than just like some text on a screen, which could easily be a bot as well. So like, I think being human is so far removed from certain aspects of social media that it makes it easier to mm. not see someone as a person and rather just see them as an enemy entity. Mm. But I think Joe Rogan explained it or has a great analogy himself. He says that posts or like arguing on social media or saying offensive things on social media is like throwing a grenade or a bomb over a wall in the sense that you just like throw it over and you don't see the carnage it causes. You just throw it there and you know it's going to cause some like damage or some mm. carnage. So I think that that's, uh, that's probably the main issue. But like you said, it's not an entirely negative place. Very much like you said, social media is a tool. And that's one thing that I definitely see on my podcast is the fact that almost all technology is a tool. It's not necessarily good or bad. It's just our relationship with it, how we decide to use it and how we interact with it. And yeah, for example, for me, like it's it's incredibly useful for the sake that I get to post for example on instagram and i know that my mum my stepdad they both follow me and they both see my pictures and they keep up with me and my family in the uk so i don't get to share every moment with them physically which is a shame because obviously mm -hmm. the distance but the fact that i can keep the post of what i'm doing and what i'm up to and i can speak with them on a messenger or we can video chat i definitely think that it's not necessarily good or bad it's just a sense of learning how to use it and, of course, being more conscious of like your actions. But I think that the people that use it in a negative sense, I think it all just takes a, a certain amount of mental discipline because nothing life isn't always particularly easy. And I think having these these tools as well, they can either be good or bad. It's just learning how to, to use them really more than anything. Mm. If that answers your question. Yeah, I mean, I, I we had a little bit of a, we've, we've talked about that we're going to mention a healthy relationship. You know, how do we build that? And a lot of people will try to, I don't know, I, I, I think that there's a concept now, which is, a, it's, it's just quitting at cold turkey, right? This isn't like smoking, okay? And the, the reason I say it, it's not as, it's not as easy just to, oh, well, just, just log off, right? There is, you can take, everyone tries to take breaks, but it always brings you back in. And there are a number of things that make it, make us more susceptible to coming back into it. It's because our entire lives, maybe it's a fake perception of our lives to some people, but it is still our lives. Our friends are still on it. When you try to deactivate your Facebook account, it'll flash you five pictures of Maybe your mom, your best friend, your ex-girlfriend, and, and someone else, you know. Do you really want to leave your friends behind? Mm -hmm. they, they always do this. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if Twitter and Instagram start to follow. I mean, Instagram is owned by Facebook. And it, it, it produces, and, and even more than that, we're all commodified now. 
And this gives us, I mean, you just talked about how you run this podcast, you have, you're working with your business, you promote through, through social media. It's, it's the, it's the more, it's the easiest way. It's very accessible and it brings you more viewers. Why would I get rid of this when I'm trying to promote, don't worry, we'll talk it out. And I have an Instagram page for it and all of this. Um, I don't want to leave that because how else are people going to figure it out? This isn't, 1987 where I can post a newspaper ad and and no one's going to read that anymore, you know? Um, And and that's where I think is exactly what you're saying. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of focus and a lot of, a a lot of always almost 24 seven conscientiousness of what you're reading, how you're actually reacting to that, that maybe distress that you might be having or that confirmation bias that you're falling into um, while also being able to go, I've had too much today, right? But knowing how much is too much is very, very difficult. And I think we're just figuring that out. Um, mm. Do you have any sort of good tidbits or information or, or, or how do you think, um, how do you think it's very more applicable to a lot of individuals to try to form a healthy relationship uh, going forward with technology, social media and the like? Sure, I think, and you're pretty... Um a strong advocate for this, I'm pretty sure. But like mindfulness in that sense, mm-hmm. I think that that is probably one of the best keys. So for example, I think just being able to monitor your own thoughts and your own feelings and understanding why you feel this way and what's the root cause of this. So there are multiple ways that you could do this. I know journaling is a popular option and I definitely think that there are, or I've definitely seen there's a lot of research to suggest that that's very helpful in this case to to understand like why you feel a certain way and what causes this and identifying what really makes you happy versus what you think makes you happy on top of that meditation. So for me, um, during the quarantine, uh, here in Colombia, it was very strict. We started in March, we finished in September, but our quarantine was incredibly strict in the sense that you were only allowed out one day a week. And that was, um, designated to you by your ID card number. So we have ID cards here. And you're only allowed out um, on a certain day, depending on what your ID card said. And that was just to get shopping. And I live by myself. So I was in my apartment for almost five months, completely by myself. And now I went, I think the first two months almost without seeing anyone. So I would get up every day and know that I wouldn't see anyone tomorrow, the next day. And I went weeks without seeing anyone only um, on my screens, did I ever see anyone or the one day a week when I went to the shop and they asked if I was using like cash or card. Um, and, um, basically that was like really tough. Mm -hmm. So I found meditation. I'd, I'd been aware of it for a while meditation, but at the same time, I'd never really used it. I'd never really needed it. Like to the extent that I did then, and I was meditating 30 minutes a day and it really made a difference. And I could tell the impact they had on my mentality for the rest of the day. I was more conscious and more aware of like how I was feeling. And I think that having that kind of awareness, almost being able to step outside of your body and objectively see like, okay, how am I feeling? What are my thoughts? And also stopping bad thoughts before they happen, like stopping yourself from, from being negative while you're kind of having these negative thoughts or being, being, I suppose, defeatist in your mentality. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, social media and use of social media is the same. If you're able to be objective and if you're able to identify how you feel and why you feel that way, then I think you can have a more healthy relationship with social media. 
Sorry, there's drilling in the background. Can you hear that? I, I can't tell what which is funny. I can't tell if it's from you or from me because I also have some drilling as well. So maybe it's on both. That's right. That's okay. It happens. Um, yeah. yeah. I, 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 no, no, go ahead. No, that was it. I was just going to finish that off. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's funny because um, a lot of these uh, CEOs of Facebook, some of the executives of Google, uh, they limit their children's accounts like themselves mm-hmm. because they're, they're aware of <laughs> they're aware of the damage that's being done to their to a lot of our children's attention um mm. and it, it's it shows a lot of sometimes hypocrisy because it's like okay you need to give this to the normal populace because we're too we're too deep into it we, we need we need some breaks and I, I i think from an individual level especially during all the chaos that's around us the ability to be intact with yourself in a world that you don't fully understand is obviously quite difficult but i think the difficulty will produce a lot of good results, as you just said. Um, it taking thirty minutes of your day might, when you say that, it might seem like some some people might seem a lot, some people might seem not that much, but it's really not when 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 you do any sort of mindfulness exercise and any sort of meditative practice, this will produce long long term effects for you that mm-hmm. entire day, maybe even the next day going forward. And this conscientious awareness of who you are and what you're going to look at today, I think will only enhance your ability to at least try to be somewhat authentic. That's what I've been kind of on lately is trying to find what it means to be an authentic person in a world that's really dominated by spectacle, you know, and Mm -hmm. alienation and loneliness, especially now with COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, as you said, bringing all those together might stop a lot of the the overt comparisons that I'm really worried about. Um, and you know, I, I would like to move a little bit to uh, what you what you brought up in uh, a sec at the beginning of the podcast about children, uh, because I, I want to focus on them for a second because I think children, this generation, and not my generation, even the younger generation, I guess that would be what is that. Not not Generation X. I can't even remember. I guess the the I generation or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, people kind of born from '97 to now, mm-hmm. so they're kind of in their early 20s or in teens. This generation is the first generation where these over comparisons are really taking over their lives, and I see it a lot. I see it in a lot of kids that I know. Um, this is the first generation where they post something and they see the likes go up now. This this wasn't, th- this might seem crazy for me to say because a lot of people are so used to it now, but at the beginning of social media, this wasn't really how it was. You didn't actively kind of see a lot of the likes, the hearts, the dislikes come consistently and get notifications every time you get one of those, mm-hmm. right? You see it go up and then you compare yourself to your friend who might have 20 more and that hum of anxiety and that distress rises if it doesn't get enough, right? And then you even get numb to some of the people who I know. I, I have some friends who might have 15,000 followers, right? And it looks amazing from my view. I'm like, oh, that's so amazing. They have so many followers. But they become numb to it as well. Uh, it, it, it becomes just a numbers game. And mm. that person who has 15K followers might go, well, one of my posts got 3,000 likes and this other post got 700 likes. I have to post more of that 3,000, even though it might not be who I actually am, right? Mm. It, it might be this fake, authentic perception that I am 
that I'm putting on social media for myself. And I think that causes great harm and a lot of distress to us. What have you, when you had your conversation with that, she she was a sexologist, right? A a sexual therapist. Uh How, in terms of that, because I have been talking about that a lot too with TikTok. And I think that's really repressing a lot of things um, in children and young children. What what was your conversation like with her? And did she ever mention any sort of healthy habits to kind of get away from that as well? She said that interactions were the most important and it doesn't necessarily have to be in person. She said one example, for example, in, what was it? so this conversation that we're having, just, just one-on-one, we're speaking over Zoom. Mm-hmm. And even though we are staring at a screen, this is still a real interaction. And she said that is more important than like three people in a room just on their phones. Like it doesn't matter about the, the, the closeness, it's about the attention that you give. And also she said that sunlight is incredibly important, getting enough vitamin D, like being out in the sun. And honestly, I can say that's one of the reasons why I love being in Colombia. And that's one of the reasons why I left the UK, because sunlight really does impact your your well-being and just getting out into nature. So um, she said, like, it's OK to interact with technology. And if you're out, like you can have like music on and go for a walk. But she said just having more real kind of connections with people not focusing on your phone as much and just generally speaking with someone. And I think that's incredibly hard to do for anyone to give 100% of your focus to someone while they're speaking because we could not be on our phone, but at the same time, we might not still be paying full attention. We might be thinking, oh, what am I going to cook for dinner later? Or it's mm-hmm. like, oh, have I have I left that out? Or should I go meet them later? Instead, when someone's talking to us and we're kind of like half and half attention kind of focused. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the one thing that I've learned trying to do podcasts as well. The fact that when you're having a call, you have to be completely in the moment because nothing really matters in that moment except for having the best quality conversation that you can have. So I would definitely say that that is the main focus to have better interactions and to really give attention to someone when you're speaking to them at 100%. And it's difficult to do, but it's, it's valuable and it will pay dividends. Um, what other advice? Uh, going back to your point, though, actually, I wanted to say when you said oh, they, they might have 15,000 followers and that might mm. seem incredible, but they come down to it. One yeah. thing that I did learn during my degree, which always stuck with me, is that our level of happiness uh, climatizes to whatever we receive in our lives. So I think my one of my professors gave the example, if you win the lottery, uh, studies show that in two years time after winning the lottery, you're still going to have the same level of happiness that you did before. And it's the same with if you have an accident. So say, for example, you're, you're paralyzed and you're in a wheelchair. I think that she said it's a bit longer for that. But maybe after two or three years, you will go back to your same level of happiness. And I think it's the same with um, salaries in that case. I think like once you reach a certain threshold of a salary and you're comfortable, your level of happiness doesn't really change after that. And I think it's probably the same with, I would assume anyway, with like followers in the sense that once you reach a certain amount of followers after a while, you're not going to, it's not like you're going to consistently feel that level of satisfaction because uh, unfortunately our human nature is just to to build up a tolerance and just to mm. kind of like always want more. So I think that's important. The fact that you got to understand that even if you do, get to where you're wanting to go with with the followers or whatever it is you want to achieve that this is a numbers game and numbers are unlimited so you're still going to be chasing more and more and there's never going to be a limit to what you can achieve there so i suppose it's just taking stock and realizing that it's kind of it's just a game at the end of the day 
And everything we're saying is backed with evidence, with data, you know, but, but that's not what society tells us consistently. Even now, when we know a lot of things, a lot of these things to be untrue. One of the, I mean, the oldest adage we're taught that those highs that you're talking about will satisfy you. Mm. Even though there are so many people who are living in it right now and saying, I'm not satisfied we still have a perception of their kind of somewhat authority and the power that comes with that, the power of having a million followers, right? I mean, that's such an enticing thing. Even though that person with a million followers might go, no, I'm uh, I'm depressed, actually. It, mm. it, it's actually worse than I thought it would be. Um, Sam, I, I do want to go to one of the one of the last topics for this conversation, which is really about what is the future of tech kind of hold um, and what you think that looks like. Um, I've been doing a lot of research. There was a really great uh, conversation. Uh, it's actually on Sam Harris's podcast with, I'm trying to remember her name. It's um, it's like something with an I, but she is a researcher in, uh, in uh, deep fakes, if anyone is uh-huh. familiar with deep fakes. And that's something that I've been in- interested in a lot because I think it's extremely distressing. It's really cool, but it's very uh-huh. distressing. Virtual reality is another thing that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, what What are your thoughts, really, on the, the potentiality of what the future of technology could hold uh, and what it could look like? Yeah, it's it's simultaneously very exciting and scary, depending on what path we go down and how we look at it. But I definitely would say that you mentioned some fantastic points there, augmented reality, uh, virtual reality those would be huge virtual reality especially for training because if you think about the fact that you can simulate any kind of environment then you can almost train for anything and i know for a fact that virtual reality is being used to train um paramedics hmm. and uh, i i know that virtual reality can be used for yeah pretty much any kind of training scenario and i definitely think that that would be massive in that space um but I would say the main one for me is uh, AI, just because AI is going to change so much, in my opinion. Um, I mentioned this before on a, another podcast, but one of the best stories that stuck with me was from a guest on my podcast. Now, he didn't mention this during the podcast. He mentioned it on a TED Talk, but it was a, a fantastic uh, topic that we had him on. He was an ex-NASA engineer, and I had him on in addition with... Um, a political candidate for Congress in New York, and he was an economist, and they came on to discuss what would happen in a world where AI takes over everything and we no longer have traditional work, we no have longer no longer have traditional jobs that we have today, mm-hmm. and we survive on UBI or what work would look like. Mm-hmm. And he said in his TED talk that imagine if we were contacted by an alien race. And they said, oh, we'll be there in 13 years. And we have like all this stuff we're going to share with you. And once we get there, like, yeah, we'll, we'll be able to interact. And um, yeah, we'll see you in 13 years. It's going to take 13 years to get there, but we'll be there. Mm-hmm. We'd react like, wow, we'd prepare for them so much. We would be so ready to re- receive them and all their knowledge and everything they have to offer. And he said that AI is very similar in that sense. But because we don't see it as like um, an arrival point, we mm-hmm. are just slowly growing with it, that we don't see it as the same kind of species, or not necessarily species, but entity that we're going to live alongside wow. and that is going to impact us the same way that an alien race that would eventually land here will impact us. 
that was a really interesting perspective for me because I think that really showed just how just how big AI is going to be. And of course, um, Elon Musk has mentioned uh, concerns about how how it how it can be used if it's not used correctly. And I'd say that my main concern would be the fact that when it comes to technology, there's not a lot of knowledge within government in the sense that they're, they're specialists in politics. And many of them as well are very old. Like a lot of the people yes. that are in politics. I mean, look at Joe Biden. He's, um, I think in a week... Yeah, in a week he turns like 78 next week or something. And it's ridiculous. It's crazy. And it yet older generations aren't the best adopters for, for technology. And I mean, that's not for all of them, but generally speaking, that's what we see. So it's it worries me in the sense that I don't think we put enough emphasis on how important it is to understand technology and how it should be used, not only for the sake of like it being regulated and making sure that we're we're healthy and we're using it properly, but also in a positive sense, like how, what is the best way for us to use this within society? Like how can we implement this so that we are living in smart cities today rather than in like 50 years time? Mm-hmm. And also I feel that to some extent we should treat technology to the same way we treat smoking or drinking in a sense we encourage people to drink responsibly or to quit smoking and tell them about the dangers of their health i think that it could be useful in a society and i'm not someone that likes the government to really control or like be too much of a nanny state but at the same Mm -hmm. time i think people should be made more aware of the impact that technology can have on them and we just need to conduct more psychological research and studies to better understand what our relationship with new and um, emerging technology is like. So we actually have a place of understanding rather than assumption or fears. Mm. But yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of how I see the situation of technology going. But overall, I'm positive. I think we've made it this far. And on top of that, I think that we have an incredible capacity to learn uh, how to live with technology. I think, and I can't say this with a great sense of authority or knowledge, but looking at the two elections, obviously 2016, mm-hmm. it seemed like that was the birth of fake news. Like that for us was when we as a society realized, wow, this misinformation can be really harmful and seriously impact how society works. And I think that this previous election with Joe Biden winning shows that maybe we do have a better understanding of how this is, how other countries, certainly Russia, for example, I know that they've got their their keyboard armies and they were working to spread misinformation for this election and uh, in support of Trump. And I think the fact that um, Vladimir Putin still hasn't congratulated Joe Biden is (laughs) that that's kind of shows that in some sense that uh, his, uh, his team didn't win. Um, So I think that, it's clear that maybe the same thing happened this time around. However, we were more prepared or we had an understanding. It wasn't a case of it caught us off guard. Like we know now that like, right, this is something we need to look out for when it comes to weighing up our and making our political decisions and our decisions about how we want to operate in society. So I think as long as we have the capacity to learn and reflect, we'll be fine. I think there's a great quote, which I love. Um, which says, uh, I never lose, I win or I learn. Um, and I think that that's, um, that's mm. really inspiring. If we can do that, if we can just keep learning and winning. <laughs> <laughs> winning, yes. Uh, I mean, um, 
Uh, yeah, I, I love that quote. My one of my professors in a in in clinical psych school right now. She always she made sure you know she makes sure to never say weakness. You know, we have things that we need to grow mm-hmm. upon and, and learn from. It's just that simple. It's not necessarily a weakness in us. Um, you you brought up so many great points, Sam, and uh, <laughs> you you brought up our relationship. Well, first of all, our political uh, elected officials' relationships with social media is so so important. I remember when Mark Zuckerberg was presenting in front of uh, in front of Congress, right? And they had one guy. I can't remember who it is. It, it, it was a conservative from some southern state. And this is Mark Zuckerberg on here, right? This is last year. This is the guy who uh, Cambridge Analytica. He he is <laughs> he's responsible for keeping a lot of the fake news up there up on mm. Facebook without at least posting some sort of fact-checking behind it. The guy asked Mark Zuckerberg why he couldn't deliver some Amazon package. And I was, <laughs> I, <laughs> my mind was blown. And this was an old man. He was holding up his phone. He was like, Mr. Zuckerberg, do, 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 I keep, I, I can't receive uh, my Amazon packages. And I was like, Oh, this is really bad. We mm. don't have elected officials who understand what's happening. As you mentioned, there are um, <laughs> there are septuages, right? There are mm. 70, 80. Some people are even nearly 90. Diane Feinstein is a, is an elected official. She's like 85. Mm. And um, the, the disconnect, right? The disconnect mm. from the normal populace uh, comparative to them is, is overarching. But you did bring up so many great points about the capacity to learn and potentially bringing a lot of uh, positive incentives back into the the mainstream, especially for a lot of these uh, organizations like Google, Facebook, and Instagram. So we can actually have not an incentive to constantly take away our attention, but maybe an incentive in terms of properly using it, having some sort of proper regulation, so we don't have uh, crazy incidents like the influx of fake news after the 2016 election, as you mentioned, from those Russian troll bot farms, where all they do is just type out misinformation to kind of disrupt us. But I think uh, I think going forward, Sam, and you know, one day I would love to have you back on because this is such a rapidly changing uh, institution, really, and uh-huh. it's only going to get more. Uh, I think more a little confusing. It's going to be exhilarating, I think, especially as you mentioned, growing with artificial intelligence and how that'll change how we communicate. Maybe in virtual reality, uh, about five, ten years down the line, it's going to be very difficult. And then a lot of people have to keep up because mm-hmm. if you don't kind of keep up with what's going on, you will be loaded with a lot of things that you don't know if it's true or not because it's so mm-hmm. hard to distinguish, I think, a lot of times now. Um, and the importance of keeping a healthy social relationship with yourself, but also with others. I think that's where that comes from. Um, Sam, is there anything else that you'd like to to add before we close this little uh, podcast about social media and technology? No, it's been very fun. Um, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Randon. Absolutely, man. And just like that, that was it, guys. Thank you again for listening. I've been Randon, that was Sam, and you've been listening to Don't Worry. We'll talk it out. That is the end of today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this and you want to hear more episodes just like it, 
then follow and subscribe to Brains Bite Back wherever you get your podcasts. We are also available on YouTube under the channel of our publication, The Sociable. Just search Brains Bite Back and you will find all of our episodes there. We really love hearing from you, so leave us a review on iTunes and on other podcasting platforms to let us know what you think and we'll give you a shout out on the show. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at, at The Sociable. And finally, go to sociable.co where you can find all our episodes and plenty of articles on topics just like this. Thanks again for joining us and until next time, stay healthy and stay safe.